a week, I'm going to get really practical. Next week, I promise to get very practical. Um, but uh, today, we're going to still remain in theory a little bit. So when I say uh, actually practice this stuff, actually do this stuff, what I'm talking about um, speaks more to next week. Let me briefly, very briefly review uh, what we discussed last week. Um, essentially, what I said last week is that our world has officially changed. We now inhabit a secular culture. By secular, I don't mean bad or um, wrong or sinful. Cultures have always been bad, wrong, and sinful. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. When we say secular, we're talking about the secular age as philosophers are defining it, where it's now plausible to live as if there is no God and live as if religion is not of any importance. And so because we have now transitioned or are transitioning into the new secular age, um, we talked about things that were once assumed that we can no longer assume. Um, We need to be able to equip, be equipped to evangelize our new secular world. Um, The gospel, we believe the gospel is unchanging, but the way in which the gospel is presented is always evolving, so to speak. And the major change that happened, as I said last week, as it pertains to evangelism in our day, is that we can no longer make three assumptions that we used to be able to make. Um, Let me briefly remind you of what those were. Um, The first assumption that we can no longer make is the assumption of religiosity or orthodoxy, meaning we can't just assume anymore that people are people who, they are religious, they don't know it, but they think that they can be irreligious. They can believe there is no God and live that way. In other words, now you just don't have to be religious at all. And so we are no longer a people that cares about orthodoxy. Okay? The second thing that's been lost is objectivity. And what I talked about with that is that, we, that both moral objectivity, meaning a transcendent standard of right and wrong that people feel a sense of guilt and judgment that you used to get to talk to people about is no longer there. Um, And a logical objectivity, meaning just persuasiveness, logical arguments that you can make with people about God and religion and the gospel and evangelism, that is now behind us. And the last thing that we can no longer assume is authority. Both religious expert authority, like the Billy Grahams of old, that used to have a seat at the table, that the world used to care about their opinion, that used to be held in reverence and um, want to um, our world, even the non-religious world had respect for and wanted to listen to, um, they no longer care. You could, anybody in this room could go get ordained online this afternoon. That is what has become of uh, the ordination vocation in our culture and our society, completely meaningless, and certainly institutional authority, the authority of the church. No one cares anymore. And so I left us perhaps, and many of you uh, hinted at this, you you, you probably knew not to say it all out, but I left us perhaps a little discouraged and despairing. Perhaps you left last week saying, is it even possible to reach this new world with the gospel? Is it even possible to reach a world that no longer has a sense of orthodoxy or objectivity or authority? How in the world are we even going to do this? I just want to say up front to just get out of here with that nonsense, okay? 
Jesus is risen from the dead. He is sovereign. He is reigning. There is no culture that has ever been a match for his gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. So none of this doom and gloom stuff that has become so pervasive in evangelicalism with its kind of culture of paranoia and anxiety and cynicism that all hope is lost and and we're losing or any of that nonsense. The gospel still works, yes, even in a secular age. And so to aid us in that this week, what I'm going to do is show you that. I'm going to return to those three things that have been lost and talk about the three things that have emerged in their place that you need to understand. And then next week, we're going to talk very practically how to, um, how to, how to actually do this. So basically last week I said the world that we've known it for so long is gone. This week I want to say this is the new world. And then next week we're going to talk about, okay, how do you do evangelism in this new world that prioritizes the things that I'm going to talk about today? So um, here is, um, last week I showed you it lost. This week I want to show you what has become of our world. Rethink evangelism according to the world. Here, here are the three things. From last week and what's been replaced. Orthodoxy has been replaced by orthopraxy. Don't worry about those words. We'll explain all that. Orthodoxy has been replaced by orthopraxy. Um, Objectivity has been replaced by hospitality. And authority has been replaced by identity. This is the new world that we inhabit and I'm going to help you understand what that means, okay? First, what I say, orthodoxy has been replaced by orthopraxy. Boomers, tell me... um, if, 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 if you are old enough to have grandchildren, maybe you have had this experience or certainly you have friends that have had this experience. But what, what's going on is boomers are alarmed at how their children and grandchildren are indifferent or even outright antagonistic toward their faith. How can this be? I didn't raise them this way. How can they so easily cast off what I taught them What they learned in church. Well, let's examine the Christian life that they grew up with, okay? For the past 50 or so years, this is what the evangelical conservative Christian life has been. You go to church on Sunday. Perhaps you have another Bible study throughout the week, maybe. Maybe like a BSF or something like that. You listen to some worship music. Maybe you listen to a sermon or two throughout the week. Maybe a speaker that you find particularly compelling. You wake up in the morning, you have a quiet time, you read a theological book, going to bed, etc. That's essentially the conservative evangelical faith for the past 50 years or so. In its, in its best form, by the way, in its worst form, it's just a completely hypocritical faith and children grow up seeing parents one thing on Sunday and completely something else during the week. Well, that is the faith that is being rejected by millennials and Gen Z. Why? Because it's not making any difference in the world. At all. It is an exclusively individualistic, vertical faith without any horizontal applications. Millennials, so when we're talking about generational stuff, I am, this is how, this is, how, this, this is going to scare you. I am technically considered a millennial, okay? So we're, we're officially starting to lead things around here. So we've missed the millennials. Now we've got to talk about Gen Z, which is the next one. But millennials are called the justice generation for a reason. 
They care far less about orthodoxy, right thinking, and far more interested in orthopraxy, right doing. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Perhaps there is a correction that has needed to happen. It may be reactionary, perhaps it's taken too far, but the exclusively vertical Christianity that has marked the evangelical church for a while now is being reoriented to consider again the horizontal implications of the gospel. Simply walking an aisle and saying a prayer and embarking on a personal relationship with Jesus is now being recognized by our children and grandchildren as a woefully shallow view of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Youthful Christians are just not impressed by their parents' Bible studies. They actually want to do something in the world for Jesus. Now you can demonize them and uncharitably call them social justice warriors and all that stuff. But I'm telling you, This is what they care about. Does your faith make a difference in the world? Not is your faith right, but is your faith effective? Does it matter? Not is your faith true, but is your faith beautiful? This, by the way, is why socialism is making a comeback. They see it, albeit wrongly, admittedly wrongly, as a philosophy that at its core cares about justice and wants to make a difference in the world. And what I'm telling you is that it's not enough to rail against socialism and show how ineffective it is. You have to repent and show them how effective Christianity is. The justice generation, you can mock them, you can caricature them, you can do whatever you want with them, but I would suggest... You give heed to them. Faith without works, after all, is dead faith. The irony of the outdated, that I talked about last week, the irony of the outdated evangelism programs that presents the scenario of us standing before God on the day of judgment and forces people to ask the question, what am I, you know, if you were to stand there on judgment day and God were to ask you, you know, how are you going to get into heaven? The irony of kind of creating that fictitious scenario is that there's actually a biblical scenario of that. You don't have to create it. There's an actual passage of scripture. And this is what millennials and Gen Zs are trying to get you to see. Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from the other. A shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. For you gave the right answer to the EE question. No. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see a sick or prison and visit you? The king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This is what secular millennials care about. Feeding the hungry, bringing water to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger and the immigrant, 
and the minority, clothing the poor, visiting the sick and in prison, indeed caring for the least of these. So here's what I'm saying. Do you give up orthodoxy and become a social justice warrior? No. I am not a liberal, okay? I'm, I'm a minister in the PCA, all right? Um, I'm not going social justice on us. Hold fast to your orthodoxy, even as we will be persecuted for it. But accompanying your orthodoxy must be orthopraxy, or nobody is going to listen to your gospel. That's not just biblically, that's just not a biblical thing, it's compelling. They won't listen to your gospel presentation if they watch you basically do this vertical Christian individualistic relationship with Jesus thing and it has no implications for your life and what you're doing for the world. But they are watching. And if they watch you embody the gospel, if they see you fighting for justice and against injustice, if they see your gospel change the world in the way they think socialism is going to change the world, then they will want what you have, I promise you. They'll want that. They won't just be open to evangelism. They will want it. So, simply put, when we were a religious society, this is the question that was being asked. Is this right? Is this true? Does this make sense? Is it provable? Now, those are all orthodoxy questions. Now, the question that is being asked is, does this work? Is it beautiful? Is it changing the world? Evangelism starts by showing that the gospel is the most effective and beautiful philosophy the world has ever known. Because it actually is. So amazingly, as we start to kind of repent and kind of reimagine evangelism, we might actually start doing Christianity better. Because it actually is. This is the best philosophy the world's ever known. And it changes the world. All right. So, orthodoxy replaced by orthopraxy. Objectivity replaced by hospitality. We talked last week about a culture that values objectivity, allows for expansive and impersonal evangelism. Does that make sense to you? We said that if we just have a baseline assumption of objectivity, meaning we we have all agreed that there's a right and wrong, there's this thing called justice and, and these things, and we all agree on logical, persuasive arguments. If that's the case, then evangelism can be very broad and impersonal. You can knock on a door and you can ask them logical questions about judgment and morality and their religion and all this stuff, and they don't have to have that relationship with you because they value these things. You can hand out a track. That, 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 that makes a compelling case for the gospel and you don't even have to talk to them. You can say, hey, just go read this. Whatever. Okay, and I said last week, those days are gone. They don't agree with your objective morality or even objective logic and persuasive argumentation. Now, this lonely, isolated friendless generation that doesn't even know how to have a conversation, now they are persuaded, not by logic, not by morals, but by love, by friendship, by gracious hospitality. Which again, you may want to rail against all these emotions and feelings and love stuff. You might want to say, oh, come on. Facts don't care about your feelings. 
Heard that one before? I guess that Ben Shapiro coined that. Facts don't care about your feelings. Okay. Touche. I got news for you. Their feelings do not care about your facts. Until you capture their feelings, until you capture their love, until they feel the warmth and welcome of your gospel, they do not care about your facts. Your facts have to enter in through the doorway of their feelings, which begins by them entering in through the doorway of your home. Say it again. Facts, truth, gospel has to, in, has to enter in through the doorway of their feelings, which begins by them entering in through the doorway of your home. Like the real estate, like the real estate goes, location, location, location. Here is, here is evangelism, in a secular age, hospitality, hospitality, hospitality. This is modern evangelism. 1 Corinthians 13 needs to become your mantra if you are going to evangelize in the world these days. You have to understand that if I am right and I have not love, then I am wrong. That is not a millennial invention. That is a biblical creed. If I am right in everything I say and do, if I speak with tongues of angels, heck, if I give up my body to be burned at the stake for Jesus and I have not love, I'm wrong. That's the whole point of the chapter, right? And so what we have to do is we have to recapture the Christian vision of hospitality. And we're going to talk about that a lot next week in practical. What does that mean? How do we do that? But at the very least, and we're going to talk about this next week, and we've already talked about the one, two, three commitments at the very least, here's what it means. I would much rather every single person at TCPC, every single member of TCPC have three people. Three people or three families, whatever. Three people groups. <laughs> three people that you are loving, you're inviting into your home. They are part of the nor normal rhythms of your life. If you're going fishing, you say, hey, come along. If you're going to play golf, hey, I'd love to play golf. You have a dinner. Hey, we want you to come over, girl out. You know, we, three people that you are intentionally loving and pursuing and praying for. I would much rather everybody do that than all of us just go canvas these neighborhoods with tracks and knock on every door. Much more effective for every single person to have three people that I am committed to hospitality because it's, it's work. This is, this is narrowing down the focus of evangelism. And we're going to talk a lot about that next week. Okay, um, authority, so objectivity replaced by hospitality, specifically, specifically the ethos of love. Authority replaced by identity. This is a big one, okay? This, this one might be the hardest for you to conceptualize, but I'm going to do my best. I said last week authority is no longer. Um, when I say authority... What I have to say and what the church has to say no longer matters. So what has replaced authority is individualism. Now that you understand, right? Um, I am my own authority, in other words. Authority is not gone, but I am my own authority. I determine what's right and wrong for me and whatnot, stuff like that. Now what this leads to is you are no longer listening to authority. You are trying to find your identity. This is... Every single person, I'll go 40 and under. They are no longer interested in listening to authority. They are trying to find themselves. 
Find their identity because they are now their own authority. Discover yourself. Find yourself. Oprah. Endless introspection. When you, gradu- when you graduated college, you got to work. When they graduate college, they take a gap year to travel abroad. See other cultures, journal a lot, discover themselves, and step by step put it all on Instagram. Now, it is funny. And I, listen, nobody can critique millennial generation like I can. We can, we can rail on it. But if you want to evangelize our new world, then you have to get away from the authority stuff and learn what the gospel says to the identity. Do you understand what I mean by that? The gospel that we have always understood it is simply an authority problem. God is your authority. He has a standard of justice. You have fallen short of that standard of justice. You need a savior. Jesus is the savior. Atonement. Boom. That's that's the answer to your authority problem. That's still true. We'll never compromise on that. We'll always preach that. But like I just said with orthodoxy and orthopraxy, you have to add to it a gospel lens of an identity problem. Um, By the way, that's not unbiblical. Do you you, you know, um, you know what biblical question our secular world is really interested in? Not, if you die today, would you go to heaven? It's John 1.38. The first words out of the mouth of Jesus in the gospel of John. What do you want? What a profound... Well, you can build it. If you want to know how to do evangelism in the secular age, just there you go. Get to know people and say, hey, I follow Jesus. And his first question to you is this. What are you after? You could easily make the case that that could be translated, what are you seeking? What are you after? What do you want? Not straight to the authority and judgment stuff, but what do you want? They are not worried about what happens to their soul after death. They are trying to find peace in their souls in this life. They are lonely, they are anxious, there is an epidemic of depression and brokenness and hurting souls desperately trying to find an identity that gives them peace, joy, contentment, purpose, and all these other things. Again, the great thing of the gospel is that it works there too. Now this is where Tim Keller is gold. This is where you just got to go, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. Um, He started a revival in the most secular city by retelling the gospel as an identity issue. That's essentially what Keller did. He gets attacked for it, but I think it's, I think it's very biblical and I think it's very wise. What he did is he, he entered into the most secular city in our world, the most secular culture in our world, and instead of entering into it and saying, if you were to die today and stand before God, and how, how could you get into heaven? Instead, he reframed sin for an entire city, an entire generation. Not as transgressions against an almighty authority, which it is that, but also as what? Does anybody know, can somebody tell me how, what, what Keller did? He reframed sin with a word that is very biblical and very true and a very good way to talk about sin, but it gives it a different angle. Does anybody know what that would be? Yeah, idolatry. Idolatry. That's very biblical. 
you people are all about identity. Okay, well then, what are you finding your identity in? What is your purpose? What is your joy? What is most important to you? That's your identity. That's your idol. And then Keller brilliantly always asks him, is it working? So, you Wall Street guys, you, 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 you crushing yourself to advance in career, thinking that your identity will be in wealth and power, that's your idol. That's your God. How's that working? You know, you can go on and on and on with the examples. The good news for evangelism is that idolatry never works. That's what we have in our favor. Every purpose, every identity, every idol will fail. It never delivers, but God never fails. And so you come at it after, after love, after hospitality, after all those steps that we're going to talk about last week. You reframe the conversation to things like this. He is, he is your identity that will never let you down. You know, he is the peace and joy you went searching for on that gap year of introspective abroad that didn't work. And you just came back and you, you were just really anxious. He is actually the joy and peace that you were searching for in that journaling. He is the contentment and significance that you're trying to find, jumping job to job, trying to find your purpose in life. Have you noticed how, like, they're just restless? It's like, I think I want to do this. No, actually, I think I want to do this. No, actually, I think I want to do this. No, I, I, I got to find my purpose. What's my calling? It's just an identity issue. Thinking that they can find the right purpose in life, the right vocation in life, boom, that'll make me happy. No. He is the identity that you're searching for. He is the contentment and significance that you're trying to find in your success. He is the, the pleasure the, the, I would dare say praise C.S. Lewis, the weight of glory, where he makes this argument that you were actually made to be famous. Did you know that you were made to be famous? But not fame in the eyes of man, but famous in the eyes of God, and you have that. And he calls it the weight of glory. All of you exhausting yourself on this Instagram game to get glory, guess what? You're famous in Jesus. You see what I'm saying? We're reframing the way that you come about it. That he is your contentment. He is your significance. He is the thing, unlike your idols, that will not fail you. In, and, and, and in finding him, you will find yourself. The identity you're searching for is found in Jesus alone. In dying to yourself to live for Christ, you will actually discover yourself and come alive for the first time. These are the types of conversations that resonate within our secular world and we're going to come back next week as a practical guide to, do, um, to learn how to do that. I've got five minutes. I wanted to do this this week. I've got five minutes until 11. I intentionally wrote this so that I would leave some time. To see if there's any engagement. If there's no engagement, that's fine. We can, we can pray and get out of here. But, but um, that, was, that was a lot. Like That's completely changing the game. Does that raise any questions? Or concerns or fears or anything like that that anybody is thinking. I'd love if if there are questions. I'd love to pause for five minutes. Yeah. Initially dealt with 
Mm-hmm. And some of the things that you touched on today, I mean, not necessarily um, a full-blown expression of the thing, but it was profound when I was watching that. I was just trying to figure out all the aspects of what they were trying to convey. Yeah. And I, it was quite an impact rather than the climax of the story that I already know. Right. So he's talking about Les Mis, and, um, and he's talking about the hospitality of the priest. Um, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. And how that was utterly transformative, just bringing him in and that one act of grace. And it's interesting that he brings up Les Mis because that is a favorite sermon illustration of boomers. Because it is a classic illustration of law and grace. Right? That's the whole, the whole story was written. They, people think the whole story was written. To tell, you know, you got, you got the Jean Valjean and, uh, what's the, what? Javert, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. So you got the law and you got the grace, right? You got the law and grace. And that's still thinking in the terms of morality and weight of sin and forgiveness and I got forgiven and stuff like that. You know who never gets talked about, but if you want to reach the secular world, talk about Fontaine. I dreamed a dream of time gone by. And all of these longings, these unmet longings, and trying to find our way in, in life, trying to find uh, significance, and trying to find um, hope, and trying to um, get rid of this shame, and longing after this dream of this perfect ideal life, she'd be amazing on Instagram. And, and she finds that at the end, um, she is the one singing to uh, Jean Verjean, um, come away and find and discover what I found. Um, she would be the one to follow and lay Miz um, this next generation. But anyway, you brought up lay Miz, and I, I had that thought. But and it, but it's right, huh? You want me to sing it for you? No. Good question. Uh, other questions or thoughts or, or anything like that, that 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 that's resonating. Yeah. Do you get to the point? Are you when you say do you get to the point of authority? You mean where you can speak authoritatively into their life? Yes, yes, yes. Are you, are you saying, are you saying like, we, we go, are you saying you, you get through all this to get them to the point where they recognize God has authority and then you can go to the old school gospel way? You don't know. Where does the authority of God fit into the pursuit of identity? Great question. Um, helping them, helping them reimagine what again. We're going to get into a lot of this practicalities next week, but helping them reimagine what authority looks like according to the gospel um, is another thing Keller does brilliantly, where um, he will turn it. 
he will turn every lecture he's given on a secular campus um, or really any sermon he gives, he will turn it in the end so that he helps them see, yeah, there really is an authority to God. Yeah, you really do have a problem, all that stuff. But then he, you know, he does what the gospel does. He, he shows how that authority submitted uh, itself for our salvation to become this identity that you're looking for and all this stuff. It's reframing authority away from the, 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 the cold, sterile, unloving, distant, unhospitable institutional church authority to the authority we see in the scriptures, which is a God who incarnates to submit himself to the ones that he is the Lord of for their, for their sake. So, yeah, it's helping them reframe authority. Good question, yeah. Well, I would say the, the current model, uh, I, I, Nicholas, I'm having a hard time there. Okay, so are you saying where does, where does church fit into this? Are you talking about fit into evangelism? What's he saying? I don't know what he's saying. <laughs> he's saying where does, where does corporate worship fit into evangelism? Okay, so you're kind of maybe getting off the topic of evangelism and just onto the topic of individualism as a whole and where corporate worship fit into that. More so trying to invite, I just see trying to invite somebody to a church. If they, if they adore individuality, look, I don't see I could invite somebody to... They don't think they need to come. They don't think, yeah, see what I said last week is that they don't think they need to come to church, and that is true. And I said last week that gone are the days of the church is your evangelist. So, it, like, you can't just say, oh, here's my evangelism strategy. Hey, will you come to church this week and listen to my preacher? And he can do the work for me? You know, that, that's over, okay? I don't think gone are the days of inviting people to church. In fact, I think corporate worship is incredibly effective um, means of, of a part of your hospitality. And here's what I mean. What's gone is... I can invite you to church, you hear it, you, and, and you go, and your life has changed. What is still powerful, and I would say more, more significant, is we're friends. I love you, you love me. I've demonstrated that, hospitality, all that stuff. Hey, I'd love for you to come check out my community. And then we're going to go to lunch afterwards and have a conversation, because it's going to be really weird. And we're going to do stuff that you're going to be like, what was that? And so I'd like to, I'd like to come and then we can go lunch afterwards with the, with the bulletin, the order of worship and let's just talk through it. And let me explain our practices. I know, I know we're kind of a weird people and, and I'm okay with that. I'm not ashamed of that. Let me help you understand why we do these things. So powerful and so captivating to millennials and Gen Z's. Again, um, the seeker sensitive mega church movement is becoming a boomer movement now. Uh, millennials. And Gen Z folks, who they, 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 re, you know, they love beauty. And so this stuff, believe it or not, is making a huge resurgence. Uh, 
liturgy, historical roots, um, beautiful practices, beautiful architecture, beautiful music, all this stuff is really making a comeback. And, um, and they'll find it, they'll find it fascinating and captivating, though weird. So you invite them, and, and it's just a part of your hospitality practices, is taking them to church with you and talking about it, if that makes sense. Did that answer your question? Yep. Okay, cool. Yeah, sorry. I right, had to say no. Okay, go. <laughs> yes, Amy. Yeah. Let me let me say if 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 if, if let me let me. Um, I had somebody ask me this question. When I do evangelism, I really don't know what to do at the end because I feel like I got to get them to say that sinner's prayer. Like I feel like I've got to get them to say, um, "Okay, repeat after me. I'm a sinner. I need you, Jesus, and all this stuff." Okay, the sinner prayer is not anywhere in the New Testament. It's a great prayer. Pray it. We pray it every Sunday, confession, sin, insurance, part, stuff like that. But I, I help them see is, no, 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 no. The only invitation in Scripture is follow me. So you are redefining evangelism into inviting people to join you as followers of Jesus. And even getting away from this pressure you feel for there to be this... Um, this breakthrough, they happen. Casey does this all the time. I don't know how, something, the anointing's on Casey. He talks to somebody and they just break down fear and trembling of God and want to be saved. But, but for a lot of it, like a lot of it is what you'll notice evangelism this day and, and followers of Jesus that comes, they're hanging out with community. You brought them in your home. They start coming around. They get involved. And at some point they became a Christian. I'm a follower. They would say, I'm willing to say I'm a follower of Jesus. And I don't know. Like, I don't know when that was, and I didn't have this walk-the-aisle moment or profound moment, but that's okay. Like, it's okay that they, and I'll talk a lot about this next week. It's okay to just let this thing organically turn into, whoa, you're following Jesus. And you would say you're a sinner who needs Jesus. And all the things that we fundamentally believe to our orthodoxy, you can say yes to those vow questions. It's just allow it to be more organic and out of control then historically we have made it to be where we've got to take them through the step and get them to say this and do this. Just let yourself be free of those categories because Jesus really does free us from those categories. He does, now one time does he come up to somebody and say, would you like to accept me as your Lord and Savior? He comes up and says, follow me. And they say no or yes. And we're going to talk about next week. We are going to talk about what does it look like to engage in challenging conversations about them following Jesus and then overcoming their barriers of wanting to be a follower of Jesus. But yeah, that's good. Okay, I, I, have, to, I have to cut it off. We've got to worship in, um, in six minutes. So if you're in the nine o'clock service, I love you. You got to get out of here. And uh, everybody else. Let me pray. Let me pray. Let me pray. Lord, we pray uh, that this would not just be theory talk, fun, um, intellectual conversations. We pray that we would be an evangelizing church. Teach us a better way. Teach us how to engage our world. Um, um, because you did it. You are, you are the great evangelist. And we follow after you. And so to follow you is to call others to follow you. And so help us to be an evangelizing church. In Jesus' name, amen.